Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. stretch. I guess it's a done deal now. So sunny this morning. Now kind of stormy. I feel that way. So bright this morning. Now I feel kind of stormy. I thought it was better not to do interviews or I might yell at somebody. <laughs> <laughs> so this goes on and on and on. One side, other side. In another text, Dogen says, uh, sometimes a tall golden Buddha and sometimes bottom of the ocean. Anybody feel like that? Sometimes it's like, oh, yes, that's it. And sometimes it's like, oh. And that's it also. On and on like this. The mind's amazing, and the mind is also a trickster. And that's yourself. Amazing, but also always coming in there, hijacking things. So that's why it's really important that our practice uh, goes deeper than just what we're thinking moment to moment. We all get this. I like this. Somebody had this in Oriyoki. I'm going to actually get my own Oriyoki set, and I'm going to make my whole family do it. <laughs> and some other moments, you know, can I, can I just eat something without all this <laughs> drama? <laughs> so yesterday I asked all the people who have um, jobs around the hall here to write down what their job is as a letter for the person next year. So that next year, whoever comes on retreat can read the letter and then they'll understand how the job is practiced. And then they're going to write a commentary on that letter. And this is going to go on for a while. 
until I can just stroll into the retreat and just sit here and really enjoy all my moods. <laughs> and everybody will be running around doing everything I spent ten years teaching them how to do. <laughs> So, long-term practice. So, uh, Katagiri Roshi um, says it this way. Uh, I actually found this in, in, in an interview, and so um, the interview is really good because nobody edited his grammar. You will have lots of spiritual experiences, but they are just scenery. You must be a long-distance train, anyway. Do you understand? Long-distance train. (laughs) Most important point is to reach terminal station. (laughs) Terminal station, you are exactly a Buddha. From there you can go anywhere. You will have lots of spiritual experiences, but they're just scenery. Some of you have come in with really interesting visions. That's just more of the game of the mind. Mind is always just creating new rules, new games, new rewards. This cork floor. One time I saw Bob Dylan in 1965 in this cork floor. Not only did I see Bob Dylan in 1965, but I saw him in 1965 for about three days. (laughs) Until someone cleaned the hall and moved my cushion three centimeters. And then no matter how much I looked, I couldn't see him anymore. Some of you have seen really cool colors, animals, yourself when you were small. So, um, not to hold on to any of this. Instead, we're not so interested in spiritual experiences. We're interested in the long-distance train. I like his comment. I actually want to keep the whole term. The long-distance train, anyways. (laughs) Going to Terminal Station. Which is who you are. And from there, you can go anywhere. So nice. Anyways, the, the mind doesn't even know that it's meditating. I mean, here you are, you're, you're meditating, but the mind doesn't know it's meditating. It's just like spinning out. It's just like when you're sleeping, you're sleeping, but your mind doesn't know you're sleeping. It's still just putting out all these stories. And you're always the main character. So it requires a lot of patience to do this for a billion years. 
farming's like that too. You have like a wild area like this, and uh, think about all the work it takes to dig up the trees, move all those rocks, how many years it takes to get the right soil to grow, whatever they grew around here, wheat. So that's our job when we're sitting, is just that long-term work, shoveling, digging, a lot of patience, a lot of rain, many seasons, many moods. I left you with a passage last night that I, I love. A teacher asked a student, do you have any joy in your practice? And the student says, yeah. It's like shoveling a lot of shit and finding a jewel. And I'm sure your practice feels like this too, huh? Yeah, shoveling so much crap that you've been carrying around. Maybe you didn't even know you were carrying it around. So, Dogen uses this term suchness, and I've been bringing up up a lot when I've been meeting you and, and in each talk. Um, so suchness stands for Dogen. It stands for the for the isness of being. Just how things is, which is where perception and religious feeling make contact. How you perceive something and the religious feeling that comes with just being in awe. Just awe. Finally, when the tongue just... So, that's the long-distance train. Is to be able to train ourselves to drop into that space. For whatever reason... Center of gravity seems to attract really smart people. In a way, this whole retreat is like rehab for the overeducated. <laughs> and what we're, we're so used to having ideas and then comparing them, contrasting them, judging them, creating new ones. And in this practice, even if your technique really sucks something drops just from the support of silence and the support of other people. Something drops. So, Dogen says, I'm so glad I have a light today. When you rise from sitting, move your body slowly and stand up calmly. Don't move abruptly. You should see that to transcend both ordinary people and sages and to die sitting or standing depends on the power of meditation. Have you ever thought if you had a choice of how you want to die, how, how, what posture you'd take? 
Now, for me this year, when we were working on, we did a series. Some of you, a lot of you, were there on death and dying, and we were reading death poems. And when we were going through that, we also spent a week. I think it was with Elaine, um, going through uh, kind of what you would want to tell friends and family in your dying process about what you would want. In the States, this is called advanced directives. And so when I was sort of uh, preparing for that, uh, I went to a hospital and I met an ethicist who, who kind of walked me through how that process works in hospitals. Um, and I, I started to think about, oh, when I'm dying, I want to sit up. I spent so much of my adult life just working on this posture. So that's what I want to do. I want to sit up. But it doesn't just mean physically to sit up. It also means to have this kind of uprightness. Because when you die, the only thing that matters is what's in your heart. So isn't that what we're looking at? Just every moment here. A contact between perception and this feeling of awe. And also, um, well, I want to say letting go, but I'll just say suchness. A sense of being alive. Dogen also makes a little stab at going beyond sages and you, you can see that in the in the kind of feel of this, you know. Um, in in I was trained in Vipassana, and in Vipassana, you know, uh, it's a Theravada tradition. So, like the word of the Buddha is everything. The Buddha is a god, basically. And when I started studying Zen, one of the things I I, I really loved what was in Zen. They usually call the Buddha like old Shakyamuni. <laughs> Like, poor old Buddha. <laughs> you know? To kind of like, bring the Buddha back down again. Just let him be an old man from the past. Which is a way of saying you have to go beyond Buddha. Which is going beyond everything you think that you know about your own nature. Or simple level, everything you've read. Moreover, your discriminating mind cannot understand how Buddhas and patriarchs taught their students with a finger, a pole, a needle, or a mallet. Or the, how they transmitted the way with a hosu, a fist, a staff, or by shouting. Needless to say, these actions cannot be understood by practicing to attain superhuman powers. These actions come from a practice that's prior to discriminating mind. So he's referencing here all the different ways that teachings have been taught without words. So the finger references uh, uh, a few different uh, stories. One is the Buddha's enlightenment. When the Buddha was, when the Buddha woke up, had this experience of 
having a complete shift in how he saw life. He felt like he needed a witness. He needed something to witness his experience. We all have this, I think. We have a shift, and we need somehow some feedback. So um, he asked the earth to witness his experience. And sometimes in Buddha statues, you see him sitting with one finger pointing at the earth. And that's this kind of artistic depiction of the Buddha pointing at the earth. There was one uh, Zen teacher who apparently only taught with a finger. He pointed at people, he pointed at himself, pointed at his head. Apparently, for years, students would come to him and ask him questions, and he would just go... (laughs) (laughs) And when that got old, apparently, they would ask him a question, and he would just point right back at them. And actually, I think this is what good teachers do for all of us, right? You, they, you hand them something, or you throw up all over them, <laughs> and they just hand it right back to you. <laughs> a fist, a shout. Some of you have heard me shout. Andrea got a loud one a couple weeks ago. In Wisconsin. Oh. We'll have to do it again then. (laughs) The needle is a story about Nagarjuna where uh, a student uh, wants to come visit Nagarjuna who is a meditation master. And Nagarjuna is the master of emptiness. Some of you know his Nagarjuna's teaching. And um, so Nagarjuna decides, and this is like a famous thing with, with Buddhist teachers, I don't know what it is, but every time they meet another teacher, they find a way to test them. So Nagarjuna decides he's going to test this teacher to see his understanding. And again, the test is a way of getting to the teaching that's underneath language. So Nagarjuna gets his servant to fill up a bowl of water. Maybe a bowl like this. And carry it to the front gate as the guest is coming. And just see what the guest does. So the servant fills up the bowl of water right to the brim. And carries it really slowly to the gate. And Nagarjuna waits by the window and watches what's going to happen. And the student, this this master, starts coming towards the gate, sees the bowl of water. So he's wearing robes and has a little satchel. He reaches into his satchel and picks out a needle and drops it in the water. And this becomes a very famous story that probably none of you have heard. (laughs) Um, And, you know, academics love this story because they make the bowl to be like emptiness and the needle is like, I have a need, you know, there's all kinds of interpretations. But really, to to go deeper in the story, 
The bowl is whole. It's totally clear. It's totality. Can't add anything to it. And this master takes something, which is the, it's the first thing he finds. It's the most domestic thing. This needle that you use to fix your robes. And he drops it in totality, and it doesn't overflow. So Dogen's referencing that famous story. To take the domestic, your everyday life, and you drop it in to this abundant practice that we're doing. And it doesn't change the practice. So there's that domesticity sitting there, middle of that bowl, the middle of totality. So Dogen, um, we, we could go more into that story, but Dogen's referencing that story because it's an example of this, this meeting that can happen that's underneath words. You're doing it with yourself, and actually we're doing it with each other when we sit next to each other in Oriyoki and when we bow and so on. All this teaching we're doing with one another, without words. And, you know, when we get into this practice, sometimes you need to learn technical words in order to communicate at that level underneath words. So we have these words we use, like suchness. So, I mean, if you go out to the coffee shop in a couple days and you say, you know, to someone in line, you know, can you really become the suchness when you're practicing Oriyoku with your setsu? Or if you're at the dinner table, you just point to something. <laughs> and, and so it's, as you go deeper in a tradition, the tradition is religion. And it's really... Um, it's people who are really struggling to have a conversation that's been happening for thousands of years. Struggling to find out how to talk about what you can't talk about. So they have to come up with this language that actually doesn't make sense in regular language. Dogen's referring to that a little here. Famous story about this actually is um, um, Sun Sunim, who, who was a, 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 ja- a Korean Zen master um, in the 80s, he, uh, it was arranged that he was going to meet a famous, the most famous Tibetan teacher, one of the most famous Tibetan teachers at the time in the U.S., Kalu Rinpoche. And so there was just going to be this meeting between this Korean Zen master and this Tibetan. So, of course, there's going to be a test, right? So, anyways, the story goes where uh, Kalu Rinpoche comes and sits down at a table right across from... Um, San Sunim. And as soon as he sits down, San Sunim reaches into his robes and pulls out an orange and goes, <laughs> What's this? <laughs> and Kalu Rinpoche turned to his translator and says, What, did they not have oranges in Korea? LAUGHTER <laughs> 
I just had to throw that in there. <laughs> because, because sometimes the language only makes sense within the culture that you're practicing. In other words, you don't hold on to those words. Don't consider whether you're clever or stupid. Have you done this already, this retreat? Like some moments where you just get the orioke, you're like, oh. And then one second later, you screw something up. I, ha- I have this a lot. Um, sometimes I, I, I have this like built-in mechanism where every time I notice that I'm really doing something well, I'll stub my toe. So it'll be like, oh, I'll like be in a flow of like writing or something, and then I'll go downstairs and I'll boom, stub my toe. <laughs> I just want to get a little identified with that. Or whether you're superior or inferior. When you practice wholeheartedly, it's truly the practice of the way. Practice enlightenment. So this is a hyphenated word that Dogen uses. Practice enlightenment. He never separates them. Because remember, Dogen's not into this whole idea of you practice to get enlightened. For Dogen, practice is enlightenment. Very interesting way of thinking about um, process. So he's saying practice enlightenment can't be defiled. What does that mean? Practice enlightenment can't be defiled. So actually, you're practicing here, but the real practice is actually going on below what you think. You could be having a really good retreat, You could be having a really not-so-good retreat. But the practice is going on beneath that, in the dark. Oh, and also this word wholehearted is so beautiful. What does it mean to practice with your whole heart? So, there's no reason to leave your own seat at home and take a meaningless trip to the dusty places of other countries. If you make a false step, you miss the way, even though it's right before your eyes. You have already been given a human body, which is vital. Don't squander your life. Since you're endowed with the essential functioning of the Buddha way, why pursue worthless pleasures that are sparks like sparks from a flint? Your body is like a drop of dew on a blade of grass. Your life is like a flash of lightning. Your body will disappear soon, and your life will be lost in an instant. You honored practitioner after learning in a partial way like the blind people who touch various parts of the elephant, don't be scared by the real dragon. When I was in Japan in the spring, I was practicing at this place called Myoshinji one day, and uh, I was sitting there, and I I was kind of like left to the side. They don't know what to make of foreigners, especially if you have a foreigner and you have a rock suit. They're like, it's really weird for them. So anyway, so I'm, I'm sitting there in the, basically in the corner by myself. <laughs> and um, the period of sitting ends, and I look up. It, it was just stretching. 
And on the ceiling was this huge dragon, painted dragon. But this, I don't know how old this temple is, maybe five or 600 years old. So you couldn't really see the dragon because all the paint had faded. But just with the right angle, with the light coming in that morning, I'd never noticed it another time, you can see in the old wood beams a huge dragon. It's there the whole time. So don't be afraid of the real dragon. How many of us are running away from the real dragon? (laughs) So in the West, uh, dragons in mythology, they shed their skin. But uh, in Japanese mythology, uh, dragons shed everything. So when a dragon's transformed, it actually sheds all its bones. So the dragon can shed everything. And Dogen's saying, don't be afraid of that. Don't be afraid of shedding everything. Um, I think some, some of us know that, you know, in our culture we have this whole mythology around, like, a crisis when you're 13 or 14, a crisis in your early 20s, Saturn, you know, the midlife crisis. You know. But I, I wonder if we can have more uh, mental and emotional stability. If we practice more often shedding our bones in the moment, especially in relationship. You know, some of you may know this, but when I started training in meditation, I just wanted to be enlightened. That's it. I just wanted to be enlightened. I didn't care about anything else. And uh, so I thought the best way to get enlightened would just be to learn how to concentrate to go into the realm of nothingness. Just concentrate in such a way where there's just nothing. And so that's what I did, and that's what I learned how to do. And then uh, I started to notice that it didn't help me at all. (laughs) Like, I didn't even feel like I was enlightened. And also... Um, it was really bad for my relationships. Because whenever things got hard in my relationships, I would just go and concentrate. But it's actually, I find it a much harder path to learn how to shed your bones in relationship, in the moment that you start gripping. In the moment, you freeze up. That's where I get scared of the real dragon. Because that's beginner's mind. I don't even like beginner's mind anymore. Beginner's body. That's beginner's body. That's the real dragon. So that's what Dogen's talking about. Um, I was teaching about beginner's mind this year. And the academic in me was doing some... I was very interested, where does beginner's mind come from? Where does this phrase come from? Anyways, people have thought about this. 
So the origin of the term beginner's mind comes from a text called the Book of Serenity, which is a collection of koans, case number 38, um, in the Rinzai tradition. And uh, this is where it comes from. Um, Linji, who is the founder of the Rinzai tradition, uh, has this koan. I'm not going to go through the whole koan. I'm just going to give you the punchline. And I'm not going to read the beginner's mind part, but just keep in mind that this is where beginner's mind comes from. There is a true person of no rank who is constantly coming and going from the portals of your face. Who is that true person of no rank? So there is a true person of no rank who is constantly coming and going from the portals of your face. Has anybody seen a baby's face in the last little while? You watch a baby's face for like 20 seconds and you see every single emotion in there. Like pooing, <laughs> laughing, hungry, tired, everything. And, and just wash over a baby's face. So someone I admire a lot is a, a Dharma brother of mine named Koshin. And uh, one of the things I really admire about him is when he's teaching, he lets all of his emotions come through his face. So like if he's pissed off, he really lets himself be pissed off. And he, some of you know Koshin, and he looks like he looks like a baby. Uh-huh. He's got a big chubby face, you know, and he kind of waddles a little bit. And he lets, he lets uh, his face show his emotions. Uh, and this year he's actually going to be, become a teacher. And I really admire him for that. I really look up to him. So this year we were talking about this. I was saying, you, when you're in public, you really... Show your face. And he said, you know, he calls me Shokin. You know, Shokin, we should shave your beard. (laughs) (laughs) So I said, well, my son really likes my beard. He said, your son should shave your beard. So that's what we did. So I'm going to be a father soon. I have a son on the way. Maybe you've seen him around. <laughs> All of us were kids once. All of us. So I've been thinking about kids a lot lately. When I'm walking down the street, I notice kids more. Um, 
And as kids, all of us had this religious feeling. We all had it. And then it got educated out of us. Now we're all scientists. Killing our natural world. Stomping all over it. Selling it. I was just in Wisconsin, and at the end of the retreat, I went to go visit Lake Michigan. And we were walking on the uh, shore of Lake Michigan for an afternoon. And... uh, the woman who was with me uh, lives there. And she was looking at all these incredible fossils and circular shapes in the rocks. And she's saying, I've never, I've never seen this before. You should have seen these incredible geological formations in the rock. And then she said, the water level's so low. Must be because of the drought. And I mean, the water level was really like six feet lower than she's ever seen it. And she's lived there a long time. So I got stuck in the airport in Chicago that night, and I decided to Google water level Lake Michigan, you know. And the reason why the water level is so low in Lake Michigan is because the water's being sold. The water's being sold six feet of Lake Michigan? That's your body. My body. We all know we're only as healthy as the Great Lakes. We're made of Great Lakes. So, part of recognizing who you are is recognizing interdependence. The interdependence of this Sangha, the interdependence of this building and this land and our food. That's also religious feeling. Religious feeling is also to act, to do something. So I encourage you while we're here for the next little while to go deep in your practice, as I've told all of you over and over again this retreat, and also to see how your practice is a kind of service. On this retreat, it may look like we've run away from our lives and, and we've, we've gone into hiding in this beautiful building. But actually, I think you all know that you've gone much deeper into your life. And from that, you'll see, loving action will arise. And that's where this practice turns into the long-distance train. Oh, the long-distance train anyways. <laughs> last thing I just want to say is about the physicality of this practice. We call this spiritual practice. This is a physical practice. Can you feel it in your body? I always say to people, when you feel all those aches and pains when you're sitting, it's because you're growing a new body inside your body. When we walk here... We don't walk in our usual way with our usual attitude. 
I know who I am. This is my gate. We walk like a Buddha. We copy the Buddha. When you sit, you don't sit in your normal way. When you eat, you don't eat in your usual way. We, we copy the Buddha. My teacher had me sew this, looks like a lobster bib, a Japanese lobster bib. And, and you sew this because this is the robe of the Buddha. So when I wear this form, uh, I try to be more upright as a person. Try not to get in trouble. It comes easy, so I have to wear this as much as possible. So when I sit, uh, this is the robe of the Buddha. So I'm, I'm wearing the Buddha's robe. So my conduct, internally, externally, becomes really important to me. And because we all grew up with a religion that either we embraced or were running away from, some of these forms here might bring up some childhood feelings about form. And we all know, because we chant it every morning, that the form is empty. The form does not have meaning in and of itself. I have no investment in making anybody here Buddhist. The form is only to show you the real dragon. And not to be scared of it. In the Heart Sutra, that we're chanting in the morning... The Heart Sutra is a conversation happening between Avalokiteshvara, who is the deity of compassion, and Shariputra, who is the student who just understands everything. He knows every sutra. He knows every chant. He knows the form inside out. And yet something's missing. So he goes to see Avalokiteshvara, who's doing deep prajnaparamita, really deep practice. It's my favorite part of the chant, just their names. To understand what's happening here. That Shariputra understands everything about practice. But Avalokiteshvara is doing the practice. What's the difference? Shariputra gets it, but Avalokiteshvara is doing it. He's doing the practice, activating it, shedding, shedding his bones, shedding all those hard structures we all develop, not just in our muscles and hips, but our hardness. And now I see them in 2013 on Parliament Hill. Teresa Spence on this hunger strike, doing, doing it, becoming it, becoming hungry. And Stephen Harper knows so much about it. Now day 20, and he won't go meet her. Won't have a conversation with her. 
And now she's forced everyone to look. So she's doing deep Prajnaparamita. For all of us, actually. So what are you doing? Are you just thinking about your life? Plugging it into the great story you have? About how everything's going to go? I am. All the time. thing I'm going to say is just something about bowing. When you bow to the cushion, you're bowing to the center of the universe. It's the place where you can take refuge. Everybody should have a Zafu and a Zabuton in their house. And if you live with other people, let them see it. And whenever you have two minutes, you're making dinner, you're waiting for something to boil, just go sit there at the center of the universe. When you bow, you're just saying, I deeply respect you. But you're not doing it with your words. You're doing it with your whole body. I deeply respect you. When you bow to the Buddha, you're bowing to yourself. I deeply respect you. Near the end of my trip in Japan, uh, I met Ian there. And uh, we went uh, for this incredible hike, this very esoteric area of temples hidden in the mountains, the hills outside Kyoto. And uh, uh, in one, you go down into this dark, 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 dark basement, just lit with some candles. And in it, there are just urns filled with ashes, Thousands of monks whose ashes are in all these urns. And then there's this amazing altar where there's some candles and there's kind of a cloth so you can't really see what's in the altar. So when you bow down to see what's under the cloth on the altar, it's just a mirror. (laughs) So you're in the dark alone, there's some candles, you bow down and you look up. And it's you. (laughs) Just you in the dark. Deep inside this mountain. Just you. Just you only now. So don't be afraid. 